Section 1 of Milton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. Milton by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Part 1. Milton, August, 1825. Johannes Miltoni, Angli, De Doctrina Christiani Libri Duo Posthumi, a treatise on Christian doctrine compiled from the Holy Scriptures alone, by John Milton, translated from the original by Charles R. Sumner, M.A., and etc., and etc., 1825. Toward the close of the year, 1823, Mr. Lemon, deputy keeper of the state papers in the course of his researches among the presses of his office met with a large latin manuscript with it were found corrected copies of the foreign dispatches written by milton while he filled the office of secretary and several papers related to the popish trials and the rye house plot the whole was wrapped up in an envelope superscribed to mr skinner merchant on examination, the large manuscript proved to be the long-lost essay on the doctrines of Christianity, which, according to Wood and Tolland, Milton finished after the Restoration and deposited with Syriac Skinner. Skinner, it is well known, held the same political opinions with his illustrious friend. It is therefore probable, as Mr. Lemon conjectures, that he may have fallen under the suspicions of the government during that persecution of the Whigs which followed the dissolution of the Oxford Parliament, and that in consequence of a general seizure of his papers, this work may have been brought to the office in which it was found. But whatever the adventures of the manuscript may have been, no doubt can exist that it is a genuine relic of the great poet. Mr. Sumner, who was commanded by His Majesty to edit and translate the treatise, has acquitted himself of his task in a manner honourable to his talents and to his character. His version is not indeed very easy or elegant, but it is entitled to the praise of clearness and fidelity. His notes abound with interesting quotations, and have the rare merit of really elucidating the text. The preface is evidently the work of a sensible and candid man, firm in his own religious opinions and tolerant toward those of others. The book itself will not add much to the fame of Milton. It is, like all his Latin works, well written, though not exactly in the style of the prize essays of Oxford and Cambridge. There is no elaborate imitation of classical antiquity, no scrupulous purity, none of the ceremonial cleanness which characterizes the diction of our academical Pharisees. The author does not attempt to polish and brighten his composition into the Ciceronian gloss and brilliancy. He does not, in short, sacrifice sense and spirit to pedantic refinements. The nature of his subject compelled him to use many words that would have made Quintilian stare and gasp but he writes with as much ease and freedom as if Latin were his mother tongue, and where he is least happy, his failure seems to arise from the carelessness of a native, not from the ignorance of a foreigner. We may apply to him what Denham with great felicity says of Cowley. He wears the garb, but not the clothes of the ancients. 
Throughout the volume are discernible the traces of a powerful and independent mind, emancipated from the influence of authority and devoted to the search of truth. Milton professes to form his system from the Bible alone, and his digest of scriptural text is certainly among the best that have appeared, but he is not always so happy in his inferences as in his citations. Some of the heterodox doctrines which he avows seem to have excited considerable amazement, particularly his Arianism and his theory on the subject of polygamy. Yet we can scarcely conceive that any person could have read The Paradise Lost without suspecting him of the former, nor do we think that any reader acquainted with the history of his life ought to be much startled at the latter. The opinions which he has expressed respecting the nature of the deity, the eternity of matter, and the observation of the Sabbath might, we think, have caused more just surprise. But we will not go into the discussion of these points. The book, were it far more orthodox or far more heretical than it is, would not much edify or corrupt the present generation. The men of our time are not to be converted or perverted by quartos. A few more days, and this essay will follow the Defensio Popoli to the dust and silence of the upper shelf. The name of its author and the remarkable circumstances attending its publication will secure to it a certain degree of attention. For a month or two it will occupy a few minutes of chat in every drawing-room, and a few columns in every magazine, and it will then, to borrow the elegant language of the playbills, be withdrawn to make room for the forthcoming novelties. We wish, however, to avail ourselves of the interest, transient as it may be, which this work has excited. The dexterous Capuchins never choose to preach on the life and miracles of a saint till they have awakened the devotional feelings of their auditors by exhibiting some relic of him, a thread of his garment, a lock of his hair, or a drop of his blood. On the same principle, we intend to take advantage of the late interesting discovery, and while this memorial of a great and good man is still in the hands of all, to say something of his moral and intellectual qualities. Nor, we are convinced, will the severest of our readers blame us if, on an occasion like the present, we turn for a short time from the topics of the day to commemorate, in all love and reverence, the genius and virtues of John Milton, the poet, the statesman, the philosopher, the glory of English literature, the champion and the martyr of English liberty. It is by his poetry that Milton is best known, and it is of his poetry that we wish first to speak. By the general suffrage of the civilized world, his place has been assigned among the greatest masters of the art. His detractors, however, though outvoted, have not been silenced. There are many critics, and some of great name, who contrive in the same breath to extol the poems and to decry the poet. The works they acknowledge, considered in themselves, may be classed among the noblest productions of the human mind. But they will not allow the author to rank with those great men who, born in the infancy of civilization, supplied by their own powers, the want of instruction, and though destitute of models themselves, bequeathed to posterity models which defy imitation. Milton, it is said, 
inherited what his predecessors created, he lived in an enlightened age, he received a finished education, and we must therefore, if we would form a just estimate of his powers, make large deductions in consideration of these advantages. We venture to say, on the contrary, paradoxical as the remark may appear, that no poet has ever had to struggle with more unfavorable circumstances than Milton. He doubted, as he has himself owned, whether he had not been born an age too late. For this notion, Johnson has thought fit to make him the butt of much clumsy ridicule. The poet, we believe, understood the nature of his art better than the critic. He knew that his poetical genius derived no advantage from the civilization which surrounded him, or from the learning which he had acquired, and he looked back with something like regret to the ruder age of simple words and vivid impressions. We think that, as civilization advances, poetry almost necessarily declines. Therefore, though we fervently admire those great works of imagination which have appeared in dark ages, we do not admire them the more because they have appeared in dark ages. On the contrary, we hold that the most wonderful and splendid proof of genius is a great poem produced in a civilized age. We cannot understand why those who believe in that most orthodox article of literary faith, that the earliest poets are generally the best, should wonder at the rule as if it were the exception. Surely the uniformity of the phenomenon indicates a corresponding uniformity in the cause. The fact is that common observers reason from the progress of the experimental sciences to that of the imitative arts. The improvement of the former is gradual and slow. Ages are spent in collecting materials, ages more in separating and combining them. Even when a system has been formed, there is still something to add, to alter, or to reject. Every generation enjoys the use of a vast hoard bequeathed to it by antiquity and transmits that hoard, augmented by fresh acquisitions to future ages. In these pursuits, therefore, the first speculators lie under great disadvantages, and even when they fail, are entitled to praise. Their pupils, with far inferior intellectual powers, speedily surpass them in actual attainments. Every girl who has read Mrs. Marsett's little dialogues on political economy could teach Montague or Walpole many lessons in finance. Any intelligent man may now, by resolutely applying himself for a few years to mathematics, learn more than the great Newton knew after half a century of study and meditation. But it is not thus with music, with painting or with sculpture. Still less is it thus with poetry. The progress of refinement rarely supplies these arts with better objects of imitation. It may indeed improve the instruments which are necessary to the mechanical operations of the musician, the sculptor, and the painter, but language, the machine of the poet, is best fitted for his purpose in its rudest state. Nations, like individuals, first perceive and then abstract. They advance from particular images to general terms. Hence the vocabulary of an enlightened society is philosophical. That of a half-civilized people is poetical. 
This change in the language of men is partly the cause and partly the effect of a corresponding change in the nature of their intellectual operations, of a change by which science gains and poetry loses. Generalization is necessary to the advancement of knowledge, but particularly is indispensable to the creations of the imagination. In proportion as men know more and think more, they look less at individuals and more at classes. They therefore make better theories and worse poems. They give us vague phrases instead of images, and personified qualities instead of men. They may be better able to analyze human nature than their predecessors, but analysis is not the business of the poet. His office is to portray, not to dissect. He may believe in a moral sense, like Shopsbury. He may refer all human actions to self-interest, like Helvetius, or he may never think about the matter at all. His creed on such subjects will no more influence his poetry, properly so called, than the notions which a painter may have conceived respecting the lacrimal glands or the circulation of the blood will affect the tears of his Niobe or the blushes of his Aurora. If Shakespeare had written a book on the motives of human actions, it is for no means certain that it would have been a good one. It is extremely improbable that it would have contained half so much able reasoning on the subject as to be found in the fable of the bees. But could Mandeville have created an Iago? Well as he knew how to resolve characters into their elements, would he have been able to combine those elements in such a manner as to make a man a real, living, individual man? Perhaps no person can be a poet, or can even enjoy poetry, without a certain unsoundness of mind, if anything which gives so much pleasure ought to be called unsoundness. By poetry we mean not all writing in verse, nor even all good writing in verse. Our definition excludes many metrical compositions which on other grounds deserve the highest praise. By poetry we mean the art of employing words in such a manner as to produce an illusion on the imagination, the art of doing by means of words what the painter does by means of colors. Thus the greatest of poets has described it, in lines universally admired for the vigor and felicity of their diction, and still more valuable on account of the just notion which they convey of the art in which he excelled. As imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. These are the fruits of the fine frenzy which he ascribes to the poet. A fine frenzy, doubtless, but still a frenzy. Truth, indeed, is essential to poetry, but it is the truth of madness. The reasonings are just, but the premises are false. After the first suppositions have been made, everything ought to be consistent. But those first suppositions require a degree of credulity which almost amounts to a partial and temporary derangement of the intellect. Hence of all people children are the most imaginative. They abandon themselves without reserve to every illusion. Every image which is strongly presented to their mental eye produces on them the effect of reality. 
No man, whatever his sensibility may be, is ever affected by Hamlet or Lear, as a little girl is affected by the story of poor Red Riding Hood. She knows that it is all false, that wolves cannot speak, that there are no wolves in England. Yet, in spite of her knowledge, she believes, she weeps, she trembles, she dares not go into a dark room, lest she should feel the teeth of the monster at her throat. Such is the despotism of the imagination over uncultivated minds. In a rude state of society, men are children with a greater variety of ideas. It is therefore in such a state of society that we may expect to find the poetical temperament in its highest perfection. In an enlightened age, there will be much intelligence, much science, much philosophy, abundance of just classification and subtle analysis, abundance of wit and eloquence, abundance of verses and even of good ones, but little poetry. Men will judge and compare, but they will not create. They will talk about the old poets and comment on them, and to a certain degree enjoy them. But they will scarcely be able to conceive the effect which poetry produced on their ruder ancestors, the agony, the ecstasy, the plenitude of belief. The Greek rhapsodists, according to Plato, could scarce recite Homer without falling into convulsions. The Mohawk hardly feels the scalping knife while he shouts his death song. The power which the ancient bards of Wales and Germany exercised over their auditors seems to modern readers almost miraculous. Such feelings are very rare in a civilized community, and most rare among those who participate most in its improvements. They linger longest among the peasantry. Poetry produces an illusion on the eye of the mind, as a magic lantern produces an illusion on the eye of the body. And as the magic lantern acts best in a dark room, poetry affects its purpose most completely in a dark age. As the light of knowledge breaks in upon its exhibitions, as the outlines of certainty become more and more definite, and the shades of probability more and more distinct, the hues and lineaments of the phantoms which the poet calls up grow fainter and fainter. We cannot unite the incompatible advantages of reality and deception, the clear discernment of truth, and the exquisite enjoyments of fiction. He who, in an enlightened and literary society, aspires to be a great poet, must first become a little child. He must take to pieces the whole web of his mind, he must unlearn much of that knowledge which has perhaps constituted hitherto his chief title to superiority. His very talents will be a hindrance to him. His difficulties will be proportioned to his proficiency in the pursuits which are fashionable among his contemporaries, and that proficiency will in general be proportioned to the vigor and activity of his mind. And it is well if, after all his sacrifices and exertions, his works do not resemble a lisping man or a modern ruin. We have seen in our own time great talents, intense labor, and long meditation, employed in this struggle against the spirit of the age, and employed, we will not say absolutely in vain, but with dubious success and feeble applause. 
if these reasonings be just no poet has ever triumphed over greater difficulties than milton he received a learned education he was a profound and elegant classical scholar he had studied all the mysteries of rabbinical literature he was intimately acquainted with every language of modern europe from which either pleasure or information was then to be derived he was perhaps the only great poet of later times who has been distinguished by the excellence of his latin verse the genius of petrarch was scarcely of the first order and his poems in the ancient language though much praised by those who have never read them are wretched compositions cowley with all his admirable wit and ingenuity had little imagination nor indeed do we think his classical diction comparable to that of milton the authority of johnson is against us on this point but johnson had studied the bad writers of the middle ages till he had become utterly insensible to the augustan elegance and was as ill qualified to judge between two latin styles as a habitual drunkard to set up for a wine taster versification in a dead language is an exotic a far-fetched costly sickly imitation of that which elsewhere may be found in healthful and spontaneous perfection the soils on which this rarity flourishes are in general as ill-suited to the production of vigorous native poetry as the flower-pots of a hot-house to the growth of oaks that the author of the paradise lost should have written the epistle to manso was truly wonderful never before were such marked originality and such exquisite mimicry found together indeed in all the latin poems of milton the artificial manner indispensable to such works is admirably preserved while at the same time his genius gives to them a peculiar charm an air of nobleness and freedom which distinguishes them from all other writings of the same class they remind us of the amusements of those angelic warriors who composed the cohort of gabriel about him exercised heroic games the unarmed youth of heaven but o'er their heads celestial armory shield helm and spear hung high with diamond flaming and with gold we cannot look upon the sport of exercises for which the genius of milton ungirds itself without catching a glimpse of the gorgeous and terrible panoply which it is accustomed to wear the strength of his imagination triumphed over every obstacle so intense and ardent was the fire of his mind that it not only was not suffocated beneath the weight of fuel but penetrated the whole superincumbent mass with its own heat and radiance it is not our intention to attempt anything like a complete examination of the poetry of milton the public has long been agreed as to the merit of the most remarkable passages the incomparable harmony of the numbers and the excellence of that style which no rival has been able to equal and no parodist to degrade which displays in their highest perfections the idiomatic powers of the english tongue and to which every ancient and every modern language has contributed something of grace of energy or of music in the vast field of criticism on which we are entering innumerable reapers have already put their sickles yet the harvest is so abundant that the negligent search of a straggling gleaner may be rewarded with a sheaf 
The most striking characteristic of the poetry of Milton is the extreme remoteness of the associations by means of which it acts on the reader. Its effect is produced not so much by what it expresses as by what it suggests, not so much by the ideas which it directly conveys as by other ideas which are connected with them. He electrifies the mind through conductors. The most unimaginative man must understand the Iliad. Homer gives him no choice and requires from him no exertion, but takes the whole upon himself and sets the images in so clear a light that it is impossible to be blind to them. The works of Milton cannot be comprehended or enjoyed unless the mind of the reader cooperate with that of the writer. He does not paint a finished picture or play for a mere passive listener. He sketches and leaves others to fill up the outline. He strikes the keynote and expects his hearer to make out the melody. We often hear of the magical influence of poetry. The expression in general means nothing, but applied to the writings of Milton it is most appropriate. His poetry acts like an incantation. Its merit lies less in its obvious meaning than in its occult power. There would seem at first sight to be no more in his words than in other words, but they are words of enchantment. No sooner are they pronounced than the past is present and the distant near. New forms of beauty start at once into existence, and all the burial places of the memory give up their dead. Change the structure of the sentence, substitute one synonym for another, and the whole effect is destroyed. The spell loses its power, and he who should then hope to conjure with it would find himself as much mistaken as Kasim in the Arabian tale when he stood crying, Open wheat, open barley, to the door which obeyed no sound but open sesame. The miserable failure of Dryden in his attempt to translate into his own diction some parts of the paradise lost is a remarkable instance of this. End of section 1